Welcome to this week's American Prestige. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. Derek, how are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. It looks like I'm going to be shut out of the Nobel Prizes again this year, but, uh, you know, what can you do? Oh really? Soldier I've been on. awarded. I've been awarded the peace prize. I guess uh, they told me not to announce <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> See, now you've blown it. But uh, I thought I, I thought I had a shot at chemistry this year, but it's not to be. <laughs> the Beatles are breaking up, everyone. This is Lennon and McCartney right here. You're you're hearing it live and ready to go. Uh, sorry, sorry about that. You have to you know see how the sausage is made. <laughs> So, um, so there's been a lot going on in the world this week. Uh, we're here to talk about the kidney story in the New York Times. I'm just kidding, everyone. We're here to talk about Yikes. foreign affairs. <laughs> uh, so there was a big release, actually, this week, uh, something that's being called the Pandora Papers. Uh, so, Derek, why don't you give us a little rundown on what the Pandora Papers are, why they're important, and what they reveal about the inner workings of global capitalism? Um, so the, the Pandora Papers are uh, the largest so far um, in a series of leaks having to do with sort of the uh, dark corners of global finance, offshore companies and uh, tax havens and, and things of, of that nature. It's a, it's a project that was uh, led by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and it's a, a massive kind of trove of documents, um, like millions of documents, I think 12 million or something like that, maybe more than that. Just a huge number of, uh, of papers. It's similar, you know, as I say, to there have been past leaks like the, the so-called Panama Papers, the uh, leaks, I think, last year. Uh, related to the U.S. Treasury Department's financial kind of uh, security division that tracks sort of uh, potential money laundering and things like that. Uh, there have been a lot of these kinds of leaks um, in, in recent years. Uh, this is the largest, and it shines some light on people who are uh, moving money around through in ways that, that are meant to be sort of secretive. Um, so in this case, you have uh, stories about uh, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah. This has been one that's gotten a lot of traction, who um, managed to to buy himself about $100 million of, of real estate in the UK and the US through offshore companies to sort of obfuscate his involvement in the purchases. Representatives of the king insist no wrongdoing is involved. They told the consortium that he used his own money, not Jordanian government funds, to make these legal purchases. There have been a handful of European politicians, um, in, in, you know, brought into the uh, this story. It's basically, you know, uh, there's there's no obvious illegality to any of this, but it's one of these kind of windows into how corrupt even sort of legal finance uh, can be and how easy it is to kind of dodge scrutiny and dodge taxes and and kind of uh, uh, skirt the rules if you're wealthy enough to to tap into these networks. So it turns out that global capitalism isn't exactly fair? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was shocked, but uh, it, it does turn out, you know, as it as it happens, I guess uh, if you uh, if you you're rich, you can you can tap into a whole uh, whole layer of finance that the rest of us are not. 
uh, involved in or, or have really have no. I mean, we do now because of all the these leaks uh, over the past few years, but but really didn't before that. I think have any idea even existed. Uh, well, I think I'm going to actually have to rethink th- uh, some things now that the Pandora <laughs> Papers have revealed yeah, the inner workings. It's a shocking eye This is a big day, a big day. So one of the questions I do have, though, it does seem when you compare releases like this to, you know, the Pentagon Papers, the releases about Vietnam that Daniel Ellsberg um, helped produce, uh, helped uh, not produce, but helped release in, in, in the 70s, um, that really uh, initiated a firestorm uh, around them. But it seems like, you know, re- recent releasing uh, of papers hasn't done the same. I was curious, why do you think that is? Why do you think these revelations don't um, ignite as much controversy as they did in the past? And and do you think this one will? I mean, my guess, of course, is ultimately that people just don't believe in the system whatsoever. So all of these revelations, just like it's even more (laughs) fucked up than you thought. So, okay, you know, what am I going to do about that? But what's your take on that? Or do you think there's going to be any sort of genuine response to the Pandora Papers? I don't. I mean, I I base this on the fact that there hasn't been any response to any of the previous leaks, really, other than sort of a flurry of stories about, uh, oh, look, this guy's, you know, engaging in corruption or that guy maybe, you know, uh, doing something wrong. But, it you know, it didn't really lead to anything. Uh, the 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 financial, the, the papers, the, the, the leak from last year that was uh, uh, out of the U.S. Treasury Department was particularly shocking because it showed that the, the Treasury has... Uh, like vast amounts of information on actual money laundering, like really illegal things that are going on. And it doesn't do anything about it. Like it it just sort of compiles the information and then uh, generally moves on. Um, So if that didn't generate any kind of a response, I I doubt that this is going to generate one. I think, you know, if you look for reasons why, you know, compared with things like the the, the Pentagon Papers, it's – I think you're right. It's it's sort of a cynicism to me. I think uh, it's it's the sense that people already know that the system is broken, that it's unfair, uh, that rich people are doing things that that uh, the rest of us are unable to do, um, and, and so this just sort of reinforces an already existing um, kind of sense of how the world works. Um, I would point, and you know, t- we've we talked weeks ago about. Uh, the revelations uh, that the Washington Post published about the Afghanistan war in 2019 and how those were kind of a story for a week and went away. And then we all forgot about it until uh, the the war ended the way that it did. Um, that that also, I mean, I feel like compared with the Pentagon Papers, which was sort of eye opening, like, oh, my God, our government is lying to us. And, and it was sort of an, a wild uh, revelation for people um, it, that that leak and these financial leaks just sort of it's like, okay, yeah, I, I already knew the war was going bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, I already, I already knew, knew that, the rich screwed everyone right, else. I already yeah. knew that rich people were screwing everybody. I mean, the, there could be some individual cases where this this matters. I mean, for example, uh, I mentioned King Abdullah. Obviously, Jordan is a country that's racked with poverty, wholly dependent on foreign aid. The revelation that the king, which, you know, everybody knows that the King Abdullah has money. I mean, that's not that's not an issue. But the revelation that he's, you know, got enough money to, to float $100 million out of the country and buy foreign real estate uh, may be a little bit uncomfortable for him. Um, the, the prime minister of Czechos- uh, the Czech Republic, I was going to say Czechoslovakia, 
Czechoslovakia. Good Lord. Uh, the Czech Republic, Andrei Babish, uh, is up for election. There's a, there's a parliamentary election this weekend, uh, and he was included in these papers. So it's possible uh, in a, an election like that where polling indicates that it's going to be pretty tight, uh, that that revelation could swing some voters in, in one direction or another and, and uh, you know, potentially have an impact. But but aside from these kind of isolated cases, yeah, these local I, I effects, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any systematic effort to to sort of address the ease with which people uh, can tap into this. I don't want to say illicit because again, there's nothing obviously illegal about it, but it's it, it facilitates certainly unfair, least, uh, <laughs> certainly unfair, and it, it does facilitate potentially illicit behavior. Hi, folks. It's Derek. Uh, I wanted to tack on a little addendum about the Pandora Papers, uh, something that didn't come up as Danny and I were uh, discussing it, uh, is, which is that uh, I realized there's a good deal of speculation out there uh, that the leaks themselves were the product of the CIA uh, or of the U.S. intelligence community more broadly. Uh, I had meant to bring this up during the conversation. We were a little bit rushed doing the news today, and I realized after the fact that it, it hadn't come up, and that's my fault, and I apologize for that. Uh, I, I also wanted to say, I'm a little skeptical. Let, let me put it that way. I'm a little skeptical of the idea that this was uh, an intelligence community leak. I'm not, in, I'm not saying it, it clearly wasn't. Um, but as far as I can tell, reading the speculation, it's based on the fact that there were no prominent Americans mentioned in the leak. That's peculiar. Uh, certainly, we know there are wealthy Americans who make use of these financial channels. And it, it's eyebrow raising. It's something that I think you could grab onto. It's a little thread that you could grab onto and uh, do some deeper digging and, and maybe uh, it would lead you somewhere. But in and of itself, I don't find it especially compelling. Uh, the other reason that I'm skeptical is that while there were no prominent American individuals named in the leak. The leak itself is all about financial networks that come through the United States and about financial capitalism, uh, which fundamentally, I think, you, is not, it's not in the CIA's interest or the U.S. intelligence community's interest to be leaking something that shines a, a negative light on, uh, you know, elite capitalism or the behavior of the the global elite as they run their uh, sort of hidden schemes through offshore companies that all eventually have to come back to the uh, the US banking system and and at some point you know if if there is illicit behavior going on here then there is a failure on the part of uh, the United States to oversee that system, whether it's deliberate, which I would argue it is, um, or just just a, a failure, sort of, you know, a well-intentioned but ultimately uh, poor effort. Um, either way, that doesn't reflect terribly well in the United States, and I, I question the utility of leaking something like that or a document that sort of sheds light or brings attention to that um, if you're in the U.S. intelligence community. Again, I'm not discounting it. There's certainly uh, some, some something's off in the fact that there are no Americans in, mentioned in this document. I don't know what it is, and I'm not saying it couldn't be uh, from the uh, because this was leaked by the U.S. intelligence community. If there's evidence that emerges of that, uh, certainly it's something we'll talk about on the program. Um, but my my sense right now is I'm, I'm not really there yet, I guess. Uh, but I did want to acknowledge the speculation. Again, I apologize that it didn't come up in the conversation. Um, I, I take responsibility for that, but um, I, I hope that I have addressed it so that nobody 
uh, is listening to the program and, and clenching their fists and uh, wondering why we didn't mention it. We, we, we are aware of it. I am aware of it. Um, and and uh, again, it, it should have been in the conversation, but I, I uh, kind of dropped the ball there. So I apologize. So speaking of rich, <laughs> the rich taking advantage of the poor, uh, let's fly over to Europe and, and let us know what happened in this recent EU summit, particularly in relation to the countries in the Balkans. Right. So the EU held a, a, a big meeting that, on uh, Wednesday that was supposed to um, offer some clarity to the six Western Balkan states that have applied for membership. So Albania, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia, and Serbia, uh, who have been sitting in limbo uh, for many years now, especially Albania and, and North Macedonia had sort of seen their applications get advanced, and both countries have, have been uh, inclu- have been brought into NATO in the meantime. Um, but they've all kind of stalled out, and there's a lot of disagreement within the EU about how quickly to expand again or whether to expand again at all. Um, and so they held this summit that was supposed to reassure all six countries that, yes, you're still going to get into the gang. Eventually, we just, you know, we'll give you a sort of uh, timetable. It didn't do any any of that. It, it, they they uh, adjourned it with no f- more clarity in terms of when or if even these countries can expect to get into the EU than, than they had already, which was uh, virtually nil. So what does that suggest about uh, the EU going forward? Because, you know, the last, maybe not the last 30 or so years, but, you know, roughly speaking, the EU was all about expansion uh, and, you know, and uh, putting more countries into it. So what does this suggest? Does this suggest a a change in the EU strategy vis-a-vis, you know, Eastern and uh, Southeastern Europe, or is this just a random event? I think it, it does suggest that there are countervailing pressures now. I mean, the the idea of expansion, especially in the Balkans, has been sort of a geostrategic sense that we're going to, quote unquote, lose these countries to Russia or even China if we don't you know, bring them into the club. Um, and that was the logic behind a lot of it, the previous expansion. Now you have... Um, a number of pressures going the other way. I mean, I think Brexit certainly was an eye-opener for for uh, the EU. Um, but you also have countries like Hungary, Poland, uh, even the Czech Republic to some extent kind of backsliding in terms of uh, the EU's rule of law standards and, and sort of dem- democratic governance standards. Um, there are concerns about... Um, expanding to to include more countries that could potentially challenge what uh, EU leaders, I think, the, the vision that they have of the bloc is this sort of stalwart champion of good old center-right liberal democracy. And so there are, there's, uh, uh, for the first time, I think, um, in the history of the bloc, there is a genuine debate over whether we want to keep expanding this thing or if this is, you know, if we need to sort out our internal problems first uh, before we start talking about um, adding more countries. Right. So there's a, there's a decline in confidence, essentially, from the, the halcyon days of right, the 90s and exactly. 2000s. And there are there are individual issues with some of these countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina is still basically divided into two separate countries that that don't really interact all that much with one another. Um, Kosovo and Serbia have a, a, an ongoing dispute. Serbia doesn't recognize Kosovo as an independent state, and uh, obviously the Kosovo government disagrees. Uh, so they have a, their ongoing dispute. North Macedonia's membership is being blocked by Bulgaria over some, uh, you know, bilateral issues. So there are 
there are individual uh, kind of esoteric things going on, but in in a more in a broader sense, um, the 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 issue is you know how how quickly do we want to move on stuff like this uh, these days? And the answer is less quickly. So why? Yeah, do- not really. <laughs> right. Uh, however, this declaration is a step closer to the EU perspective uh, membership of the countries in the Western Balkans uh, because it will state that the countries, uh, based on the reforms they conduct, can become members of the European Union. So why don't we end on what's been going on in the Middle East and the intra-Middle East diplomacy that has happened in the last week or so? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of fronts on which this has been happening. One is sort of the cutter turkey Axis versus the Saudi UAE axis, and they've sort of been talking to one another. Um, Qatar's foreign minister um, just visited the UAE a couple of days ago to uh, meet with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed uh, bin Zayed, who's the sort of de facto ruler of the country. Uh, um, which, which is interesting in that the UAE and Qatar. I really don't care for one another historically. Uh, and the UAE was sort of the most intransigent, intransigent of the four countries that uh, boycotted Qatar in 2017. So uh, they really seem to be kind of at least trying to sweep their problems under the rug, if not uh, actually address them. Uh, the other front, of course, is is sort of Iran and Saudi Arabia. And, and that's been very interesting over the, the last several days. Both the Saudis and the Iranians have, have started openly talking about uh, these talks that they've been holding under the, you know, a little bit under the curtain. I mean, it was known that they were taking place, but uh, these talks that they've been having in Iraq uh, on uh, sort of developing a, a regional peace framework, or at least a, a regional framework for negotiating um their problems and instead of just kind of sniping at each other in public and uh, militarizing and constantly preparing for a, a war um so that's been interesting they've made some headway in terms of talking about ending the war in Yemen which would be obviously a very big deal they've talked about not maybe criticizing one another publicly all the time uh, and working towards normalizing diplomatic relations they've even talked about uh, apparently according to this is according to a, a, a website called Amwaj media which covers Iranian uh, news uh, they've reportedly talked about regional infrastructure projects kind of working together on on things like a the highway that kind of you know runs through the the Persian Gulf region so it's very interesting the the representation according to Amwatch has been interesting the representation of these talks uh, which were you know thought to be kind of going on at, at relatively low levels it turns out they're involving people like the secretary of Iran's supreme national security council Ali Shamkhani uh, Saudi Arabia's minister of state for foreign affairs Abdul Jubair uh, you know, very high level representation, which I think, uh, you know, much higher than people had uh, had previously thought. Um, the lesson here to me is, um, you know, look what happens when the United States gets out of the way. Right, exactly. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, forces these countries to stop kind of p- picking camps and forming, you know, forming cam- op- opposing camps and talk to one another. And that's, you know, uh, again, should be a lesson for anybody interested in Middle Eastern stability that the United States does not contribute to stability and in fact does the opposite but right when it puts its thumb on the scale it winds up you know distorting what what i like to refer to in my head as organic developments on the ground where people need to get along with each other exactly Um, okay Derek, thank you so much. We've got a great interview uh, this week uh, about the american basing system which i'm sure you'll all enjoy and we'll see you next week bye-bye 
Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek with you again uh, for another excellent interview. I'm sure it will be excellent. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Danny Bessner. Hello, everybody. Uh, Danny and I are very lucky to be joined this week by uh, three distinguished guests. Not one, not two, but three. Uh, Leah Bolger, uh, the president of World Beyond War. Hello. Hi, Leah. Uh, Patterson Deppen, a researcher for World Beyond War. Hi, everyone. And David Vine, professor of anthropology at American University in Washington. Hey, thanks so much for having us on. Our three guests here have written a report uh, recently published by the Quincy Institute uh, called Drawdown, Improving U.S. and Global Security Through Military-Based Closures Abroad. Uh, So we're going to dig into some of the findings of this report and some of its implications. I think um, just to kind of give people a sense of the top-line findings here, uh, the report finds about, we'll get into the uncertainty of this, but about 750 U.S. military bases abroad in 80 countries and colonies, um, which represents three times as many uh, bases, military bases as diplomatic facilities. That's something we could also get into. Um, The report finds that while uh, we're at about half the number of total installations that the United States had overseas during uh, the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, uh, the footprint of those bases has expanded from about 40 countries to about 80 countries. It's doubled. Uh, These bases are costing us about $55 billion a year, and that's not including new construction and expansion, which, um, depending on the estimate, has cost us upwards of five to maybe nine billion dollars a year since 2000. Uh, so, a lot of interesting issues here, and something that we've talked about on this show before is is the massive global footprint of the U.S. military, and uh, we're very excited to kind of dig into this report and, and to have the authors here with us. So, thank all, thank you, all three of you, for, for being on the program. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So, why don't we start um, at just at the beginning, as it were? Uh, so, we're going to talk mostly about contemporary affairs, but um, whoever would like to take this question, um, just when did the United States really start building its overseas empire, as I would refer to it, or as historians uh, have referred to it, historians like Daniel Immervar, as an um, archipelago of bases around the world? You know, we know, and we've talked about a lot on the show, all U.S. history is the history of empire from westward expansion to the War of 1898 and, and to the, you know, global structure created after World War II. But whoever would like to, would you give a, just a little bit of a sense of the history? When did this system really get going? Why did it get going? And who built it? The United States, as as you point out, has been an empire since independence or the earliest days after independence. And the first U.S. bases abroad, the first foreign military bases that the United States built were on Native American people's lands. But the contemporary empire of bases, as many refer to it, really emerges during World War II, when the U.S. military builds more military bases on other people's land than any empire or people or country in world history. This is a massive infrastructure on a global basis of thousands of bases in hundreds of, or in in scores of countries. After the end of World War II, 
this the basic infrastructure of bases remains in place. Many of the bases closed, but a huge infrastructure of bases remained in place throughout the Cold War, fluctuating up and down a bit. Um, but as uh, Derek pointed out in the introduction, the number of bases by the end of the Cold War was around 1,640 countries and colonies. Uh, and despite the end of the Cold War, the which had been the the, the raison d'etre for this infrastructure of bases, it was a, a basic foundation of U.S. foreign policy and approach to confronting the Soviet Union. Despite the end of the Cold War, the again, the infrastructure of bases remained in place and has remained in place for now more than three decades. So just one question I have before Derek gets into the methods is I'm very interested in, in the story of hegemonic transition. So, you know, I've read a lot about World War II. So could you maybe give a sense of how many of these initial bases were taken over by the British or were forced by the United States in various lend-lease agreements to be given by the British to the United States? Because what always struck me, as if I'm remembering this correctly, is that quite a few of those bases were actually Actually, just British bases that the United States took over, really signaling the transition in sort of hegemonic power from the UK to the US. So I was wondering if you maybe talk about that for a sec, or am I totally misremembering my comps? <laughs> no. So, so empires through history have used foreign bases as a major instrument of their power to expand their, their power, to expand the land they control, to claim and uh, resources, uh, pursue profit-making the British Empire, like other empires before it, controlled large numbers of foreign bases. And indeed, at the beginning of World War II, before the United States even formally enters World War II, through the Destroyers for Bases deal, the U.S. gains access to bases, both existing bases and the right to build new bases in a series of British colonies in the Western Hemisphere in exchange for 50 World War I-era destroyers. This really begins a new uh, era in the establishment and expansion of U.S. military bases abroad. Uh, again, there, there have been U.S. bases abroad since virtually the, the earliest years after independence. The number grows over time throughout the 19th century and early 20th century. But a, the, the number of bases abroad reaches a, a new level quantitatively and, and qualitatively uh, beginning with the destroyers for bases deal, and we see yeah the expansion through the rest of the war and 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 its perpetuation to the present. I think there's some interesting aspects to this report, sort of in the methodology of it, and uh, we'll obviously have a, a link to the report. Uh, for people to check out for themselves. But uh, I was hoping maybe you guys could talk a little bit about how you came to compile this list. And there's a couple of aspects of that. One being, how do you define an overseas base? Um, you know, versus, uh, you know, the, the government has some, has its definitions, but I think, you know, you guys are using a, a, a different one. So maybe you could talk about that. Um, and, and also, as I said in the, the beginning of this, there, there's some uncertainty here about the total number of facilities. And that's because the Pentagon doesn't broadcast 
where its bases are located or how many bases it's operating. Um, it, you know, some of that is, uh, I'm sure, due to uh, secrecy and, and sort of uh, tactical reasons, but it also dovetails nicely with uh, a, a, a Pentagon that maybe doesn't want the American people to know uh, how big this this sort of footprint is. That um, doesn't sound like the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's it seems like it could serve two purposes. Um, so I wonder if you, you guys could talk a little bit about the nature of the list, how you define bases and how you came to, uh, you know, sort of determine where these places were located in the absence of, of sort of full transparency from the Pentagon. Um, I am a retired naval officer. I was um, in a, a Navy for 20 years and I was stationed on several bases. Um, and my work now as an anti-war activist with World Beyond War uh, in trying to address the, the the abolishment of the institution of war, you tried to break it apart and what are the components that are making war possible and supporting war. And so we've come up with this idea of closing these overseas bases. And if we did that, that would reduce tensions enormously. And, you know, it would send the right signal that we want to increase uh, embassies and decrease bases, as, as you mentioned. So uh, this became a, a major campaign uh, for World Beyond War. And uh, I was uh, kind of serious serendipity, uh, Pat Dappen took one of our online courses and expressed an interest in helping a volunteer with World Beyond War. And I contacted him and, and uh, he uh, has a lot of experience in research and an interest in the topic. And so uh, we, we asked Pat to, to do this, to take this project on. Uh, and uh, he and David really look, worked very closely on the methodology and the collection of the data. So those kind of questions he can answer. But the whole impetus for doing this was to try to find, get something solid and tangible that we could point to when we're trying to lobby or we're trying to make a case for closing these things. So now we have empirical data that we can use. Before we go to Patterson, Leah, I would just like to ask you, as someone who experienced, you know, the lived reality of the bases, um, what was that experience like for you? And I, I think what you just said is so important that I want to underline it. Like, oftentimes on the left, because the left has been so weak and the anti-imperialist movement has been so weak, we kind of have this blanket critique. But what you're emphasizing is really identifying particular nodes of power and trying to really get at them. So I was wondering if, if you could, um, before we go to the methods question, if you can maybe just talk a little bit about the lived experience of the bases and why you think this project is so critical to reframing the United States' global position. Well, you know, I, I, I grew up in, as an adult thinking, well, this is normal that we have bases everywhere. This is just the way it is. And in fact, that was kind of the one of the enticements when I joined the military. My first duty station was Iceland. I thought that was very exotic and, and, and you know, very interesting. So in different countries, I was stationed in Iceland, Bermuda, Japan, and Tunisia. And the reception by different countries' citizens it was, it was different in all cases. Um, I think... Uh, the, the closer the, the country is, well, Iceland's a NATO country, um, the, the more supportive they are of the, the U.S. presence there in their country. Um, I remember in Japan, every Friday, there was a protest outside the main gate, and we were told, you know, don't engage with these people. And I, you know, I really at the time didn't give a thought to why are they upset about it, you know, um, just thinking that it was, it was normal the United States would be there and, and, uh, whatever. There's so many things though that, that so many reasons to, 
to uh, get rid of these bases, close them down. And some of them are because of the way they affect the uh, just the living conditions, the environment, the, all kinds of uh, crime and, and those kinds of things that affect the population directly. And then, of course, the others are the or the more intangible things about how they threaten and, you know, can provoke uh, confrontation. Great. So, Patterson, why don't you answer a little bit um, Derek's question about methods? Because this is so crucial, because I think many listeners will be shocked to learn that, you know, in a supposedly democratic country, we we as democratic citizens don't have a full understanding of where our country is located in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a really important question, too. Um I think for me, I kind of came into this as um, a master's student um, at the University of Bristol. I was writing my dissertation on U.S. military bases overseas because I'm a former dependent. My dad was in the U.S. Army, so I've lived um, on several in the United States alone, but then also I've lived um, on a now-closed base in what what was in Germany at the time. so that's kind of where my interest is. And then I remember reaching out to Leah and working with David to kind of develop how would, how we would start to kind of organize the work. And obviously a lot of this is kind of comes from David's own lists that he's been, I'm not sure when he started, but I know he's been keeping a list for a considerable amount of time. Um, so this was kind of so much so that the government relies on it, which we'll probably talk, talk about later. (laughs) So this was, I think, um, building upon that work and then also the work of of people before like the late Robert, um, Harkavy and also the late Chalmers Johnson. So I think there's been kind of a collective push to kind of understand the kind of the imperial presence of the United States military around the world and through specifically bases. And that was very helpful for me because, um, again, I'm kind of new to this overall. I haven't been studying it as long as David or other people who are in the field. So um, it taught me a a tremendous amount. And then um, I guess going into more of the specifics about the methodology, we use the Pentagon's own definition of what counts as, and they define a base site, or we just shorten it to base. Um, And I'll just read out the definition So this comes from the Pentagon's 2018 base structure report. And in that report, it defines a base site as any specific geographic location that has individual land parcels or facilities assigned to it um, that is or was owned by, leased to, or otherwise under the jurisdiction of a DOD component on behalf of the United States. And in that base structure report, they haven't produced one since 2018. Um, They have their own list of bases. And they have their own list of the countries that it, part of that list is the countries that they're located in. And then you'll have the individual base sites listed out. So a lot of this work came from the Pentagon's own list that hasn't been updated since 2018, which is why I'm assuming they probably rely on David's lists for their studies that they contract. 
So one question um, I have is that uh, I think you have all received a little bit of criticism online by saying like the base in Ireland is only a cemetery. I'm just using that, you know, as a, a random, not, not a real example, but could you maybe respond to the uh, potential criticism that you're actually overstating the number of bases? Um, and I'm, I'm a sympathetic listener. So I would just like to have a, you know, a, a response to that or a post, if you will. I know I, cause we were keeping up with the criticism on, on Twitter as well. And then we, David and I, David, Leah and I were discussing kind of, um, you know, how to respond to this. And then I think people targeted the, the dog cemetery in Guam to kind of distract from the larger report. Um, but again, most of, most of the bases come from the Pentagon's own base structure report from 2018. Um, in my personal opinion, I actually think it's a very conservative estimate because it doesn't include bases that the U.S. funds for other countries' militaries. It doesn't include CIA facilities. So this is, I, in my opinion, this is very focused just specifically on U.S. military bases that we could verify with very limited resources. Again, this isn't a study that was being conducted by a team of people at RAND Corporation or something. This was, we had very limited resources and we were going off of, I think, everything we, we that was available to us online um, from previous studies. Um, so in, in my opinion, I think it's pretty conservative estimate, actually. And, you know, there wouldn't have been a dog cemetery in that country if we hadn't had a military presence in that country. So, I, you know, it's it's a is something as a result of our military presence in that country. And, you know, and just the bases alone uh, are not all the indicators of a military presence. I was stationed in Tunisia at the time. There was no base there, but um, there was a lot of pressure, uh, of course, on the Tunisian government to share their facilities. And we did joint exercises and we used their ports and their airports. And and uh, so there's definitely a military presence in every country uh, through the embassy. And they always have, I worked in the Office of Defense Cooperation, and we did foreign military sales and joint exercises and all these things, even though there was no base there. So, you know, we're everywhere, really everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like to talk about some of the impacts, the implications of of your findings. And one of the things that, that you highlight in the list uh, is the nature of of the government in the country where these bases are. Many of them are in colonies, in U.S. colonies, which uh, I think, you know, you include uh, correctly, you know, arguing that these places don't really have a, a democratic say in, in how the U.S. government operates. Um, but uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the number of authoritarian countries um, that are in this list and there are a, a bunch of them i think there's um you know like uh 19 or 20 outright authoritarians you know states that are outright classified as authoritarian there are a few that are uh, sort of partially authoritarian um and in a couple of cases you know guantanamo bay let's say or uh, the u.s facilities in syria the united states is there without the support of the government. You know, the government doesn't actually want us there, but but we're there anyway, uh, like it or not. But in many of these cases, we are in these countries at the invitation of the government and in some ways, uh, you know, wind up supporting or, or sort of um, 
securing those governments in a sense. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the implications of of having so many U.S. bases in in places that are uh, politically not necessarily aligned with what we claim to be kind of American values, democracy, et cetera. During the Cold War, in particular, the one of the claims about U.S. bases abroad was that they helped spread democracy. This is one of the main justifications for, for having them around the world. And our research shows and research of others has shown that this is the exact opposite is frequently the case. As you pointed out, there are U.S. bases in, in at least 19 authoritarian countries, a number of other uh, countries that are uh, less than fully democratic. And de facto, U.S. bases are then providing support and legitimacy for these governments that frequently are not just anti-democratic or, or downright murderous in some cases. Uh, so that U.S. bases are, are, are in fact, in, in, in my mind, I think in our minds, blocking the spread of democracy and, and, and democracy movements, uh, which should be profoundly troubling to us all. And when we think about where should we begin closing bases abroad, I think among other places, closing bases in undemocratic countries should be at the top of the list. So one thing that I kind of think of as a theorist or historian of U.S. foreign relations is the role that these bases play in geopolitics. And I want you to let me know if this assumption is wrong. Because, you know, on the left, we often talk about capitalism and everything. But I also think that there's a fundamental security structure to the world. And actually, as an intellectual problem, we don't know how the structure of capitalism and uh, of a sort of non-nation state-based capitalism uh, interacts with the nation-based, uh, nation-state-based security uh, form. So I, I would like to hear um, if you had any thoughts about that later. But the first question that I want to ask is, I kind of assume that just the very existence of these bases serve as a deterrent and structuring uh, serve a deterrent and structuring role in international relations. That even if the base doesn't necessarily do anything, just having it there pointing toward, let's say, China, exerts a disciplining role on 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 what the structure of world politics is. So I was wondering if you could maybe uh, you know disabuse me of that notion, or, or maybe talk a little bit about the sort of geostrategic role that these bases actually play and how that relates to American visions of security. This is one I feel particularly passionate about. For a long time, again, one of the claims, but really a myth about U.S. spaces abroad is that they deter enemies. The, the, the central claim is that, that they are important to maintaining peace and, and security in the world and stability in the world because they deter enemies. My response to that claim is a simple one. Prove it. There is simply no empirical or other conclusive evidence to suggest that U.S. bases abroad provide a deterrent effect, produce a deterrent effect. That's not to say they've never deterred, uh, but there is no conclusive evidence in the international relations or political science literature to to suggest um, that they are an effective deterrent. In fact, the opposite is frequently the case. They encourage other governments to build up their own military forces and military presence, military spending. I, I think it, it's helpful here to, to, to put the shoe on the other foot, so to speak, to think about how would U.S. leaders, how would U.S. citizens respond if China or Russia, for example, were to build even a single military base near the borders of the United States? There would be an immediate call, I have to think, for the U.S. to respond militarily. There is not a single Chinese or Russian base anywhere near U.S. borders, other than uh, 
Russian bases in, in, in Russia, uh, near Alaska, I suppose. Meanwhile, there are literally hundreds of U.S. bases surrounding the borders of Russia and China and Iran and North Korea, which uh, Russian and Chinese and Iranian and North Korean leaders have every reason to fear, especially given the role that U.S. bases abroad have played in allowing the United States to launch aggressive, offensive, unnecessary wars in the last 20 years alone. So then just to build on that, they they nonetheless impose a structuring effect on international relations because what they do is they force other governments to spend a lot on their military and they create a posture by which the United States peer, appears as forever threatening. Is that correct? Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it's not just the bases. Don't forget about the aircraft carriers and the submarines that are loaded with hundreds of missiles that could destroy uh, the, the world, literally. So, uh, you know, where not only does it, is there pressure, I think, to, uh, that Americans are taught that this is, this is a deterrent and we got to keep these, these countries in check. But it also feeds the, you know, the, the machine that we, we keep, uh, you know, building and, and buying and, and using and, you know, giving away and selling, uh, you know, the, the whole military uh, machine, the tangibles. I also think that this is based on kind of really outdated Cold War uh, rhetoric, really, because, for example, you have 119 base sites in Germany. But what what are they what deterrent what are they deterring? From you know who are these? Is there's no real expected Russian land invasion into Germany? This just no. It just doesn't um, make sense from a deterrence standpoint. And I think that this it's just a lot of it's really based on really outdated kind of Pentagon mm -hmm. um, policy from the Cold War. So then why don't we close the basis? What's keeping it from being closed? Uh, what I'm essentially asking is if geostrategy doesn't necessitate these bases, you know, it's Cold War thinking, Cold War ended a long time ago. What are the array of interests, essentially, from the domestic political economy that prevent the closure of these bases? Who wants them open and why? Great questions. Uh, and I think it's, it's unfortunately even more complicated than domestic interests. I think their interests in the host countries, there are people who support these bases. In addition to people who protest them, as Leah was, was referring to, there are people who make lots of money maintaining these bases, frequently expanding these bases, keeping them running, and they become invested economically, literally, as well as sometimes personally and professionally in keeping them open. Within the U.S. military itself, and Leah can speak to this better than I, there, there's, there's really a, a, an inertial quality to these bases where it, it's not in anyone's interest to shut them down. You don't make a career by saying, you know what, I'm the commander of the space. I think it doesn't need to exist. It should be shut down. Um, similarly, of course, the, the billions of dollars that are being made maintaining the bases on a year, yearly basis mean that the contractors in particular who who run the bases, maintain them, have a vested interest in keeping them open. Uh, there, there are others as well, uh, indeed, uh, economic interests, political interests in host countries and in the United States alike who, who want to see them open. Just the last, one of the few times uh, Congress investigated this huge network of bases was in the late 1960s and early 1970s and 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 researchers since then have have backed up this this conclusion that 
that really once a base is opened, it becomes very difficult to, to shut down. It becomes embedded in the local, the regional, the national, the international political economy in ways that make them very hard to uproot, but not impossible. It's important to point out uh, because the, after the end of the Cold War, significant numbers of bases were closed. The George H.W. Bush Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, all closed literally hundreds of bases in, in Europe, especially to a lesser extent in Asia. So it, it can happen, but it's very difficult to close them once they are established. So something that you gestured toward in that answer, David, um, and uh, I'd like to get, get the panel's commentary on this, how do you think that international capitalism, and this is really compelling to me because we have this deracinated capital that just flows around the world. You know, capital flows, people don't. But that system, which we have a very good sense of, is necessarily embedded in this nation-state linked security structure. So how do, I mean, this is an enormous question that people could probably write tomes about, but how do you think those two things interact, at least when it comes to the, the literal system of bases? Those two things meaning capitalism and so sort of a, a, a borderless capitalism and a nation state linked security structure. Cause we're, so the reason that I was thinking about this when I was on the, uh, the Bernie foreign policy team, you know, we were asked, what would we do? Right. And I'm like, we have a really good sense of like how capital functions, but we have no sense how that interacts with this, you know, it's, it's the U.S. security structure. You know, there's the North Atlantic world and it's related, but it's really a security structure based from a domestic political perspective. And that's always been a really interesting theoretical question to me. And as people who have studied bases so, so, um, so intimately, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how they fit into the larger capitalist system. I have some first kind of thoughts. I think you see a lot of times, um, I think um, there's an argument that these U.S., that these military bases support U.S. interests in a particular region or a country. And I think that's oftentimes related to um, private interests of the United States. So what kind of resources may be in that country, uh, for example, within, with the Middle East, with oil. Um, and then you're also seeing this now with the U.S. command on AFRICOM, across the African continent. You see um, there's a lot of resources specifically um, in the DRC. There's a plutonium that's going to be a key resource in the batteries for electric cars. And um, as we kind of shift to, we become less reliant on oil and shift more towards um, greener alternatives. Um, so I, I think a lot of times they, they do, they, they, protect U.S. private interests and then also help those companies, um, those U.S. multinational companies in those countries feel more secure um, operating out of those countries. I think the, the thing I would add, uh, maybe a, a few things. I mean, clearly, U.S. spaces abroad have advanced capitalist interests in a whole range of ways again, from the earliest days of uh, after independence. Uh, bases were a key part of, of expanding territory that, that uh, the United States government claimed, but that were to the benefit of land speculators, fur trappers, um, real estate salespeople, men almost exclusively. Um, and we see a whole range, as Pat was pointing to much more recently, you know, bases abroad and the militarization of the milita Middle East by the United States has, has been in the service of, of, of oil interests. 
um, uh, among, among many other capitalist interests that, that bases abroad have supported. Uh, but I think bases abroad also show us that that even the U.S. military is not so rooted in the, the nation state. I mean, what is the U.S. military when, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, at, at, at the high points of those wars, there were more U.S. military contractors uh, than uniformed military personnel. Many of those contractors were not U.S. citizens. Um, similarly, the, the companies uh, doing the work to maintain and build U.S. bases abroad are frequently not U.S. companies, um, again, showing how the benefits, uh, the, the benefits go to a, a small group of, of transnational, frequently elite. Um, similarly, the, the, the oil that, that, that keeps these bases running, often provided by, by foreign firms. Um, so it's, it's a tremendously complicated and, and, and intriguing question that I need to think about more, but that's a start. Uh, I'll let Derek ask a question in a second, but I just think that highlights the parastatal nature of the entire U.S. state. I'd like to push a little more on on the issue of contractors because I think it's one of the when we talk about uh, what are, who are the stakeholders that are sort of keeping these bases uh, alive. I think one of the one of the one of the things we have to talk about is the uh, the outsourcing of. The construction of these facilities, the maintenance of these facilities, the operations to some uh, extent of these facilities, the expansion of them, uh, you know, going to, to private companies instead of being, you know, on the Pentagon's books, um, which, you know, has some ostensible, I guess, um, efficiency benefit or, you know, uh, you know, kind of keeping the bottom line down. But it also creates an incentive for these private companies then, which have very uh, sophisticated, in many cases, uh, lobbying apparatuses or, you know, know how to, to get their issues before uh, stakeholders in Washington to sort of go, you know, then and uh, lobby for maintaining or even building more of these facilities to, to add to the bottom line. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dynamic and how the the trend toward kind of privatizing these aspects of uh, the U.S. military has has maybe enabled some of the expansion of, of uh, the footprint or makes it more difficult, at least, to, to sort of draw down that footprint. And the first really important thing to say is that privatization of the U.S. military has been a complete failure. It has not kept the bottom line down. If anything, the exact opposite has been the case. It's driven up costs in a whole range of ways. From and and we're talking about everything from from the production of weapons to uh, the the people who who run the bases. Well, and with the salaries that the soldiers are, you know, they're they're putting their lives on the line for you know a. a, a a fraction of what the contractor right next to him is, is making. So it's, yeah. Yeah. To me, that whole process is related to the, you know, the conscious effort to remove any sort of consequence of empire from the American public. And what, what is, you know, kind of, you know, happened is that the official armed forces of the American state oftentimes serve as, you know, the minor leagues of the contractors, uh, which is a really interesting thing. And as David was mentioning the, the sort of international, um, identity of many or the non-US identity of many of the contractors just highlights that, you know, we're returning to almost a pre-nation state form like Gustavus Adolphus hiring a bunch of mercenaries to conquer Europe. Um, so it's interesting how you see these circular um, empires working uh, together. I think the most troubling aspect of the privatization of, of war making, privatization of the military, is that it's made more people and not just people, but, but powerful, wealthy institutions invested in war. 
and made them more likely to support future wars. And this is one of the mechanisms. I mean, what we're talking about here that we haven't said yet, we're talking about the military industrial congressional complex. Eisenhower. Media. Don't forget media. <laughs> There's so many academic think tanks, intellectuals. Yes, academic. Yeah. The complex has 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 become far worse, I think, than than Eisenhower's worst nightmares when when he was leaving leaving office. Um, but all these corporations that are now. Uh, an essential part of the military system of the warfare state that the United States has built since World War II are invested in perpetuating the endless wars, the forever wars. And this is what, you know, troubles me most, uh, that the United States, despite the withdrawal from Afghanistan, looks set to get into yet more wars unless we change the underlying system and bases, bases abroad are a fundamental part of that system in tandem with privatization, uh, among other profoundly troubling aspects of this military-industrial congressional complex. I think this is a, you know, another illustration of how capitalism affects the, the whole the whole thing. Uh, you know, if 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 war were not profitable, we would have far less of it. You know, and and then the other the you know the American people's. Uh, you know, practically uh, well, propaganda, I guess, to, to, to make us not even bat an eye that it's okay to spend a trillion dollars a year on, on war and we won't spend, you know, a tiny fraction of that to, on, on the infrastructure, the healthcare, the education, you know, all those things. And we don't even question it. We don't even question it. And now, you know, the, the, the Congress is really balking at, at spending this money that was over a 10 year frame they're talking about. And, but, but, you know, they'll, they'll pass, a, a, you know, three quarters of a trillion or a trillion dollars. And it's, it's understood. And the American public doesn't question it. And I, and how is that possible? You know, although increasingly uh, there's some, some polling research recently that, that showed that, that, uh, sizable majority of the country would like to see the United States withdraw forces abroad to, to reduce its military troop and base presence abroad to shrink the size of the military budget so that it actually would be pop popular to, to move in the, the direction of demilitarizing the United States and, and its, its military presence and, and spending in particular. But the American public's priorities have never matched what Congress spends their money on. I mean, for, for decades, people, their priorities have been healthcare and education. And Congress, because of the machine, the, the lobbyist, and, you know, they retire from the military, and then they go work for a think tank or a lobbyist, and it goes around and around. So I, it, the, the system is so entrenched, I'm not sure we can fix it. Even It doesn't matter what the American public thinks, because both the, the only the two parties are going to ever be elected, and both of them are part of the war machine, because they have to be, because they need the money to be elected. And also just to, to add to that, I think that's by design. I mean, I study the 1940s and when you go to the 40s, the, the entire creation of the national security state was to essentially remove foreign policy making from any sort of democratic accountability. So uh, that's the question that I wanted to ask because, I mean, I, I think Americans may want to, you know, retreat from abroad or restrain themselves, but it's not one of their top issues because they're not affected by it or only military families are affected by it. And oftentimes those families are from the, you know, the mountain West and the South and, you know, are, are basically not, not the elite of American society or the bourgeoisie. So I personally don't see 
a change in the American geostrategy without sort of making re-massifying war, you know, getting rid of the all-volunteer force so that, you know, uh, Democratic Party elite's children might be drafted at some point as opposed to just go to Harvard. So I was just wondering if you maybe talk a little bit about that and, and what you see the connection between public opinion and this structure as actually being. And from there, where do we go from there? Because I, I agree with Leah. I, I'm, I'm pretty not hopeless, but I'm skeptical um, if the American public has no real stake in the game, why, you know, you could, this, this could kind of go on forever. And I'll just make one final point, because unlike previous empires, you actually needed people to staff the British Empire. You could now run this empire through drones. You know, you could run this empire through a, a very minor footprint of American citizens. And that, to me, indicates that this thing is going to last for a long time. And as long as you're willing to pay people, you know, any amount of money, it, it will keep going too. I mean, you know, even if you don't have a, uh, people that want to be you know, to to serve, uh, so to speak, uh, you, you know, you pay them enough money, they'll do it. That's how you have mercenaries. So, and we don't care how much money we spend, evidently. I think I, I really want to touch upon um, what Daniel said about with the public opinion, because I think this is really important. Because I think what you've traditionally had in the past is you have the bourgeoisie people making a lot of money from this who are leading the narrative and leading the discussion on military military bases of war um but if you look at the opposite and you look at poor working class people you you actually see the opposite i think and a great book that i that i recently uh, reviewed and it's forthcoming and it'll be published in uh, Towards Freedom. It's a book on, it's called um, Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels and Black Power, in International Solidarity um, in the 1960s, New Left Organizing, right? So this is, um, I think it's, what it shows is you have white, poor working class communities. So the focus is on white working class poor communities, but I think you also see this in black working class poor communities. And they're essentially faced with two options to kind of deal with the poverty and their material conditions, escape to elite, traditionally white spaces. And you see this narrative in books like um, the Hillbilly Elegy, where he goes to Harvard Law School and then he gets a job at Silicon Valley. So that's kind of one narrative. And the other is you join the military. And I know this is the fact because my dad was in the very in very similar position when he graduated high school. He's from a working class family. His choice was either find a job um, there outside of Hershey. So then it was a Hershey factory, Hershey chocolate factory, or join the military and hope that you can kind of escape the, those material conditions. And for him, I think it worked out, but for a vast majority of people, it just, it doesn't work out because the U.S. military doesn't, it, it can't even take care of their own people, the, the, the people who are serving for them. And so I think you have a lot of um, resistance now and a lot of anger, especially from veterans who are from poor working class. Primarily, they are from poor and working class communities. We're not talking about the officers, but we're talking about the rank and file members, the ones who are doing a lot of the labor, a lot of the work and the killing. And they're Could I have, they're angry I actually have a question them. about that um, because I... I so whenever I've posted about that online or talked about that, I always get pushback that actually the enlisted soldiers 
um, are around the median or even slightly higher than the median income in America. Uh, this is not my specialty, so I was just hoping that could you state, um, you know, categorically what the class composition of the enlisted part of the military is? Because I've read so many different things. Well, I, I'm also a member of Veterans for Peace, and and we do a lot of work with uh, trying to talk to the high school kids. Um, and I can, I mean, I would not be able to tell you a percentage of people who, you know, how much their their family's income was that joined. I tell you, I joined the military because I needed a job. And virtually everybody I know, uh, they joined because they needed a job or they want the money for college. And you will not find very many 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds who will join the military if they have a ride to college, if they have a good job in their in their first. And this is why the recruiters prey on kids in in, in low-income areas, urban areas, rural areas where the, the kids don't have, uh, you know, they don't they don't have AP uh, literature classes. They didn't have foreign language. They didn't have labs. They have very basic education, and they don't have any prospects. And so I mean, this speaks to the whole priorities of the United States. And if everybody had health care, I just saw something uh, on John Stewart's new show, and, and, this, and, and it was the first episode was about um, the burn pits and the American uh, soldiers that are are now experiencing cancer because these burn pits and they're not the VA is making them prove that they got the cancer because the proof and they're not getting reimbursed. I thought, well, for God's sakes, if everybody had health care, you wouldn't have to prove how you got sick or got injured. That's the answer, not putting more money into the VA. And we could have that, you know, so I, I, if we just changed our priorities around. So, but no, I mean, I wouldn't be able to give you a statistic, but I, by and large, I, I really think that uh, that's true, that, that people who join the military do not have a lot of means at all. Yeah, I think the, the the thing I know is that the demographics have changed in recent years, and the 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 military is now disproportionately reflective of the the South and of red states, and 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 much less of uh, the urban poor um, as it, as it was, for example, during the Vietnam era. But I want to come back to what what Leah said, and 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 the lack of universal health care, for example, and and, and again, I think. A, a mythology of of this system of war and the system of overseas bases is that it doesn't affect us. It does affect us. I mean, just begin with the $55 billion a year that we're spending on this very robust infrastructure bases abroad. That's coming at the expense of building a robust system of universal health care or repairing our public schools that are so often crumbling or repairing our roads and bridges. Um, or building a green infrastructure that could help save us from global warming and climate catastrophe. Um, and that's just the basis abroad. If we look at the, the last 20 years of, of war, it's cost us, according to the Cost of War Project, uh, the best estimate available, $8 trillion, trillion with a T. $1 trillion is, is incomprehensible, but $8 trillion the United States has, has poured into war that total spending on militarization actually gets to $21 trillion in the last 20 years, $21 Jesus trillion. Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, sh it should make us say that and, and, and worse. Um, when we think about what we haven't spent money on, when we think about the people who have surely died, the hundreds of thousands have died. I mean, look at COVID alone. You know, how many COVID deaths could we have prevented if we had spent even a fraction of the $8 trillion or a fraction of the $55 billion on pandemic preparedness. Literally, I think hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved in the United States alone 
if we'd invested in pandemic preparedness, a system of public health care, a universal health care system. Um, I, I, I think this speaks to, to, to me. I'm, 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 I'm concerned and at, at times very pessimistic, too, about the ability to change the system. But I think for me, this points to the urgency of changing the system, because if we don't, the United States empire, the United States warfare state is going to collapse sooner or later, and it's going to collapse either in bankruptcy or an even more catastrophic war than the past 20 years war that we've seen. And that should frighten us all. You know, the, the money could be used to, so diplomatically to completely reverse our relationship with the rest of the world. The World Beyond War uses the statistic that we got for the United Nations that 30 billion with a B, 30 billion dollars could end world hunger. You think about that. Can you imagine our relationship with the rest of the world had we ended world hunger and still had, uh, you know, uh, several hundred billion dollars left to destroy the world? But can you imagine? And you can't imagine that, really. It, just a tiny fraction. If we made enemies instead of, excuse me, if we if we made friends, if we worried more about uh, making friends than making people afraid of us, and that's that's the thing we would rather make people we want them to be afraid of us rather than to to like us and and i i i don't understand it i i really i get this is the kind of thing that gets me crazy uh i can't understand it but but yeah so we could do so much good and and you can't even really put it into uh words and that that's part of why our drawdown report is calling for not just closing bases abroad but a policy of drawdown and build up Drawdown, meaning close bases abroad and build up our diplomatic presence, build up our other forms of engagement with people around the, around the world, including addressing world hunger, addressing pandemics, uh, addressing the real threats that are facing us, again, first and foremost, global warming and climate change. We're we're coming up here, I think, on a, a point where we should should start to wrap up. But on that note, um, I wanted to um, ask you guys about the impact of these the bases themselves on the countries in which they're situated. And this is something you get into in the report. Uh, you talk about specifically the environmental damage that these facilities may cause. Uh, more generally, you talk about the status of forces agreements that often govern uh, or usually govern the operation of these bases that allow, um, you know, not just, not just allow the U.S. to sort of skate uh, by in terms of the environmental damage, but allow U.S. personnel to uh, escape repercussions for accidents and even for outright criminal activity. Uh, so I wonder if you could go into a little more detail about those aspects and the effect that these facilities have on the host countries. Well, I think focusing on the host countries and specifically the people around the bases, not people who may be in the upper classes around the bases, but specifically the poor and working class people who have to alter their lives kind of um, in accordance to this base's presence. Um, and they're not going to have many other options. So my dissertation was on um, the Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. And it's the largest, or it's, it's one of the largest U.S. military bases um, overseas. And I think what you see is you have these bases build up in very um, Ramstein particularly is um, it's a very small kind of 
villages around it. And you have people who are going to have to alter their way of living in accordance with the presence of the U.S. military. So, um, and that's very precarious. It's not, and it, it, it kind of debunks another argument that people say that these bases create quote unquote gift economies for other nations and they, they act as, um, um, they, they give people, um, so say they give local Germans jobs because they can work on the base or they can, um, maybe they well provide they, consumers, you know, that's an yeah, argument provide an consumers of, for a local yeah, economy. Of, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's extremely precarious and it's also, um, it's in the service industry and it's incredibly gendered. So not only do you, do you hear about the infamous red light districts, right? Um, but you also hear about, um, what, what I was researching was there's a large number of, it's very gendered, either barbershops or nail salons outside of Ramstein Air Force Base. And that doesn't, that's not a job program. Um, it's not a sustainable job program. And you see, um, with the Trump administration, it was in 2020 when he was threatening to pull out. Well, he was he was saying that he was going to pull out um, a very large portion of troops out of Germany because his argument was that they should be contributing more in military spending to NATO. And the U.S. is tired of picking up the slack. Um, but this there's just absolute fear in the communities outside of the base because their whole lives had kind of become intertangled mm-hmm. with the presence of the space. And it's not, it's done very little to improve their material conditions. It has not made them feel economically secure. And it's, um, that's just the effect that I think it can have on the people economically, but then the environment also produces a whole range of other issues. Well, econo- um, there's a downside economically too. Uh, for instance, in Japan, where it's very, very, very crowded, there's not enough room on base for all the military people stationed there. So the DOD gives the people money to go rent houses on the local economy. And they give them a lot more money than the local people can afford to pay for their rent. And so the, 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 you know, the local people have to move farther and farther away. And, you know, Japan's not a big place and not a lot of places to go. So it drives up inflation and makes it impossible for the people who live there. And as we wrap up, I want um, I'd like to get the panel's thoughts on um, bases in the colonies um, because I really liked that the report used the phrase colonies because that that is what these territories are the five populated territories that the United States has Guam, American Samoa, um, Puerto Rico, um, Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Is that correct? Are those the five? I believe so. Yep. So. So could you maybe comment a bit on um, the bases in the colonies? Because I know that there's been nuclear tests and things along those lines, and they've affected local and indigenous peoples in very profound ways. So I just, you know, for listeners who might not be aware, one, that the U.S. has literally formal colonies, and two, that it stations troops there and what negative consequences these have ha- uh, th- this fact has had on local populations. Yeah, sadly, the effects on on the colonies are a an illustration of of the kinds of damaging effects that u.s military bases abroad have worldwide um, but they're particularly extreme in in what the u.s government calls the territories but but places that are indeed in a, in a colonial relationship with the rest of the united states people in the in the colonies uh, do not have the right to vote for president um, they don't have voting representation in Congress. Um, 
they're in a position that's even even weaker than the District of Columbia, which is a colony it, itself, uh, where the residents have the right to vote for for president, um, but also have no voting representation in Congress. Uh, but what we see throughout the colonies is is indeed this long track record of of displacement, people being forced from their lands during the construction or expansion of of U.S. bases. Uh, we see the kinds of accidents you see around the world. You see environmental damage that in 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 essence the military couldn't get away with in the 50 states the 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 military tends to treat uh the the surrounding environment in a way that 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 would would simply be unacceptable in the 50 states and thus the environmental damage is even more extreme than we see at, at domestic bases um uh, uh, among a whole range of of other damaging effects uh but uh, maybe first and foremost one sees uh, that the colonies in no small part remain colonies because of the presence of us bases abroad in, in guam as the highest concentration of bases now the military loves having a place where they don't have to worry about a member of Congress that they need to take seriously. They love having the freedom um, of these colonial spaces where they can operate with as little oversight as possible. Uh, and uh, the, the again, the, the colonies have remained colonies uh, because uh, really to, in no small part because the military uh, desires to keep them as colonial spaces where they can maintain large numbers of bases. And I think the U.S. military also kind of exploits colonial relationships that countries may have um, with other countries as well. So the, I think the prime example is Japan. And there's a, there's a reason why a vast majority of the bases in Japan are south in Okinawa, because the colonial relationship that the Japanese government in Tokyo has with Okinawa and there's that's there's a historical reason why there's such a large and colonial reason why there's such a large buildup of military U.S. military bases specifically there and not across mainland Japan as well. Indeed, and and the same goes for the the, the base that really brought me to to study and care about this issue uh, as much as I do, and that's that's the the U.S. base on Diego Garcia, which the British. What remains of the British Empire has 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 controlled, um, and uh, again, if, if we're thinking about the ways in which U.S. bases abroad block the spread of democracy, we need look no further than the the U.S. colonies and the colonies controlled by U.S. allies, where bases are located and where they are playing a direct role in preventing. Uh, these places from either gaining independence or being fully incorporated democratically into the countries they're colonized by. I think it's just important to point out that there, this is not just a leftist concern. There are people across the political spectrum now who are questioning this base status quo. They're libertarians, they're more mainstream Republicans, they're leftists uh, who are asking, wait, why does the United States have 750 military bases in 80 countries and colonies? Are these bases protecting us? Are they making the world and the United States more secure, safer? Are there better ways to make the United States safer and sec more secure? And the, the reason we undertook this, this 
report was because we were part of a group called the Overseas Based Realignment and Closure Coalition that has unified people across the political spectrum who share concerns, often for very different reasons, uh, but are an example of the, the sort of political momentum toward closing bases abroad. The Biden administration, sadly, despite closing bases and withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, has indicated that it wants to build yet more bases uh, when it should be doing the exact opposite. But there are growing uh, calls across the political spectrum uh, for the Biden administration to do the right thing, to draw down and to build up our diplomatic engagement and other forms of engagement uh, rather than further militarizing the globe. Well, I, I mean, uh, re regarding Obrecht, that's uh, how I, I've been so involved with David and his work um, is through Obrecht. And it's been very interesting for me to see um, the different approaches and the different reasons why these interests. Uh, we have people from think tanks and, re and, and former congressmen and, and other retired military people. Um, some of the reasons are that they don't think we need them strategically and, and, you know, they're redundant and that they need to, you know, be, be uh, closed. But I think the primary reason, though, is that the people view them as provocative and counter to um, peaceful relationships and, and diplomacy that, that they or they only uh, have a negative effect on in those kinds of things. Um, I will put a plug in for my organization, World Beyond War. Uh, we have uh, members in 192 countries have joined our uh, Declaration of Peace, and uh, we're we're doing our best to dismantle uh, the institution of war itself. And so, if anybody would like to get involved in what we're doing, it's also just the website WorldBeyondWar.org is a huge resource. We have all kinds of information, not just the report that we just finished here that that uh, uh, Pat and, and David did, but all kinds of things uh, tour that I, I would invite people to look at. Thank you. Um, I guess for me, I just wanted to say, I think that although the report might seem kind of depressing to begin with, because you see such a large military presence around the world, I think we should also be a little bit optimistic, at least in the U.S., because I think we are seeing kind of a resurgence of kind of anti-war, anti-imperialist popular movements. I think a lot of people are making the connections that we just discussed um, today. Uh, I don't think they're being fooled by the U.S. military's rhetoric that they've been like, lazily relying on for decades. And I think we're at a real kind of crucial turning point, if we're going to be optimistic, where there is a real potential to kind of develop a real popular movement against U.S. militarization, U.S. imperialism, and then in U.S. wars as well. So I think that's another thing to keep in mind, too. Uh, well, thank you, everyone, for taking uh, the time to speak with us. We greatly appreciate it. And I want to point everyone toward the link in their podcast app where uh, the report uh, will be, uh, a link to the report will be placed. And I really recommend that everyone reads it. It's really important to get a sense of the giant structure that the U.S. empire uh, maintains. So I just want to thank all of our panelists again. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, yeah.